Heavenly Father, without the Holy Spirit, the words that you've impressed me with will have absolutely no power. I pray for comprehension and conviction on every individual here, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would touch someone's heart to see a different aspect of your love through your law this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, the title of the sermon is actually God's Love, what did I say uh, in it? It said good, and it should be God. God's law is God's love in verity, or something like that. You're going to see that as we go along. So let's start with an introduction. Psalm 77, verse 3 says, Your way, whoops, sorry. <laughs> Am I going backwards? I was going forwards, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm going backwards. So I'm going to let them get us together here. Sorry. It looks like I should be hitting the other button. Sorry. Thank you very much, Josh. All right. Psalm 77, verse 13. Your way, O God is in the sanctuary. The word way in Hebrew is translated either literal road or pathway, but it can also mean how you do things, how you think, how you act, how you are. It's really your character. And we see this in Exodus 33, verse 13, when Moses talks to God and he says, show me your way, that I may know you and find grace in your sight. And then in the very next text, he says, God says, my presence will go with you. God's way is how he does things and how he behaves, which is his character. If God's way is his character, then Psalm 77 verse 13 could read this way. It says, your character, O God, is in the sanctuary. Notice that Moses is linking knowing God with receiving his grace because they go together. So let's keep going with this introduction. How is God's way in the sanctuary? Well, if you think of the sanctuary, you see that there's a courtyard, and if we were to have concentric circles, everything on the outside to the far end would be the world and the way it does things. So that's the furthest thing away from God. They don't want God. They have done away with even believing in God, and so they're at the farthest point apart from God. But then you go closer, and you have God's people, and all the people in Israel surrounded the sanctuary, but then all of a sudden you come to the outside of the sanctuary, and you see that as you go in, you have the, the altar there in the courtyard, and as you go in even further, you see the holy place, and you're getting even closer and closer and closer. But then, if you don't stop there, you actually get deeper into the most holy place, which is actually where God dwelled. And there, in that, even in that spot called the most holy place, on the far right you see, we talked about this last time, we see that ark. And yet even deeper, we see on the ark a mercy seat. And you open the mercy seat and what do you see inside? You see God's Ten Commandments. 
Now in Exodus 33, Moses asked to see God's glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will show mercy. Do you know or do you remember that in the second commandment, in chapter 20 of Exodus, verse 6, it says, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Matthew 23, 23 says, woe to you, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you pay tithe of men, anise and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Well, Matthew, what are the weightier matters of the law? They are justice, mercy, and faith. So brothers and sisters, in order to get to the heart of God in the most holy place through the mercy seat in the ark, which is the character of God and the law of God, you have to go through his mercy in order to get to God's character and his law. You have to go through mercy. We just saw that at the very center of the entire sanctuary, which is God's dwelling place uh, on earth among his people, is the law of God. That is my topic for today, the law of God. And you're probably gonna say, oh, Charlie, boring, wow, can't believe that, another topic on law. Most people look at the law as a set of don'ts. A few Christians understand that in what James 2.12 describes, the law of liberty or freedom. And this is a very useful and inspiring way of understanding the law. The Ten Commandments are promises from God to you and the things that he is going to set you free from. The Ten Commandments are all promissory and they are never, ever prohibitive. And after today, I hope that you will never ever see again one negative in the Ten Commandments, none. The Decalogue can be read both as a promise and a commandment. They're the two sides of the same coin. God doesn't come to us autocratically, but he comes romantically, wooing us to see this bigger picture of him and then about others. But an even more powerful and inspirational way to read the law is as a transcript of God's character. When you travel straight to the heart of the most holy place and you peek under the mercy seat inside the ark, you see what is at the core of God's character because the most holy place is his dwelling place and it's his law. So I want you to see this. I've actually had, Steve, he's gonna send out a, a handout at the very end, some handouts. Right now, I'm just gonna share with you the first three, but I still want you to see this correlation because I've given you tons of examples. But look at this. Every time you read about God and his description, you have a, a corresponding same word description about his law. Look at this. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. Matthew 22 says, God's law is love. God is spiritual, says John 4, 24. And yet in Romans 7, it says that God's law is spiritual. John 14, 6 says that God is truth. But Psalms, sorry, but Psalms, 
119.142 also says that God's law is truth. So there'll be more examples as you see them later, but reading the Ten Commandments like this is really important because experiencing God is not merely fulfilling a checklist and doing his laws, but rather it is in knowing him. Notice what this verse says. And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, <clears throat> and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, I shared this very quick illustration with someone at, over lunch this week. But many of you may not know that Genesis 4.1 says, And Adam knew Eve, and Cain was born. The same word that is used for know in that intimate verse is the same word here, that they may know you. Next to, is God's people who by grace, sorry. Eternal life comes from knowing Jesus. The only way to know someone well is to know their character. This is why it is so important for us to read the Ten Commandments not just as a checklist, not merely as a set of promises containing liberty, but even more importantly as a transcript of God's character. The way that we can best understand Jesus, how he thinks, how he behaves, is through his character, which is really who he is. We often define God by this verse. We know it well. God is love. It's a familiar verse, and I absolutely don't disagree with any of it. I completely agree with all of it. But may I suggest that not only is God love, you could also say God is law. Now, it sounds funny. We've all been conditioned to say God is love, but you could just as validly say that God is law. And the Bible doesn't disagree. Galatians 5.14 says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is setting up an equivalence between love and law. The law is love made tangible and real through the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 3.19-20 says, We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that the world may become guilty before God. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. If you read Romans 7, verse 7, and James 1, 23, you will find that the function of the law is like a mirror, revealing to us that we are sinners. It is, as Paul says, it reveals to us a knowledge of our sin. But now turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. And I can hardly wait to share this text with you. Oh, that's the wrong one. I, it's the next text. Galatians 3, but we'll start with this one. Galatians 3, 24 and 25. It says, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. So the first function of the law 
in Romans 3 of being under the law means that we are under the condemnation of the law. We are guilty. And this Galatians 3 verse that we just read tells us that if we live by faith, we are not under the tutor or another name for the law. So when we live through faith, through the faith of Jesus, which was my sermon two weeks ago, God takes his commandments and he writes them on our hearts. The one who wrote those 10 commandments, who lived a life faithful to God's covenant, his very law, now writes his character on your mind, which is your heart. We are under the condemnation of the law when we are not putting our belief and trust in the faithfulness of Jesus. We also saw that God's law has a section, second function, which is revealing the character of God in a most beautiful way. God's desire and purpose for us is for you and me to reflect his character to others. Now, two weeks ago we read in Jeremiah 31, and it also is repeated in the New Testament in Hebrews 10, verse 16, that God's law is written on our hearts, hearts inside of us, not on a stony surface. It's like a mirror that's condemning us. God wants to write his very law in, his, in our hearts. In this light, now I want you to get, look, get excited. I'm getting excited. Let's look at Galatians 5. I had never seen this till today, for preparing for today. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do any of you possess all of those qualities right now? Who does this sound like? It sounds like Jesus. But does the text stop there? What does the rest of the text say? Against such there is no law. When you are no longer under the condemnation of the law, then you are living in the fruits of the Spirit. I don't know if you see that. There is no law against you living perfectly with the law of Jesus writing on your hearts. The things of this world no longer have sway. You are now, through Jesus, portraying the fruits of the Spirit. And therefore, since the law reveals condemnation and your problem, but you're living in harmony with Jesus, no longer are you under the law. To me, that's clear. And I only heard a couple amens. Amen! Oh, wow, still weak. <laughs> we, re we see in verses 18 as well, but if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. We find in the Ten Commandments, we find the Ten Commandments, so let's get started with about the, the law. So we find the Ten Commandments in uh, Exodus 20. And in verse 2, we read this. I didn't even put that up, sorry. <laughs> I got so excited, I, I didn't follow my slides. <clears throat> in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, we read, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The first thing that God says when he presents the Ten Commandments to Israel is, I'm your God, I'm the one who saved you and freed you from Egyptian slavery. God's articulation of the law starts with first salvation and freedom. This is a beautiful symbol and a typology of the cross. Every year, Israel was to be reminded that they were set free by the Passover lamb. Every single commandment, my friends, before you get one, two, three, four, five, all the way to 10, it starts, every commandment should be read in the light of verse two, that Jesus has set us free from slavery and bondage because he is the true Passover lamb. Now, if you go back one text, you're gonna see that God spoke all these words. Who's, who, 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 who spoke them? God spoke which words? Which, which are they all? What are they? What's about to come? The Ten Commandments, okay. <clears throat> God spoke all these words. So then if we go to John chapter one, verses one and four, it says that in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was God. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is what God's law is. He is life and he is light. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 33 and verse six. It says, by the word, by the what? By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Jesus' word, ladies and gentlemen, can create worlds and it can change hearts. Remember, the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt 400 years. Moses brings them out into the wilderness to Mount Sinai and God presents the law to them. God doesn't say, Moses, tell those lousy people to keep the Ten Commandments and if they do, then I will liberate and free them from slavery. No, God freed us first. No one can ever keep the Ten Commandments in their own power and their own strength. Salvation and redemption are not because of anything that we do, and it never is. God frees us first by his grace, his goodwill, and his love towards us. And then he provides the means of obeying him. The Decalogue is given to all of mankind for all time. They cover humanity's duty to God and to their fellow man. We know from Jesus that the first four commandments are grouped into one doctrine. In Mark 12, 30, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first commandment. Now, let's look at the first four commandments in light of both of the functions that I have just shared about the law. Both as a mirror, which condemns us and tells us what's wrong with us, and then after they're written on our hearts, the transcript of them being written by Jesus on our hearts. So here's the first commandment. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. All right, let's look at it from a mirror standpoint. This commandment condemns me and puts me under the law because in my life, oh my goodness, I have so many things that I treasure that are more important than God. 
This shows us that we are a sinner and in need of a savior from all those things. But if we look at it from a transcript perspective, when I ask the power of the Holy Spirit and allow God's faithfulness to permeate my life, this commandment that used to condemn me is now written in my heart by God and now becomes a beautiful promise. When I view this first commandment as a promise from God, I realize that I love him so much that I won't value anything else more than him. Because Jesus is enough, he is sufficient, I don't need anything else because God is my everything. You don't need other gods because you have made the creator God the very center of your life. God will be our everything in life. He satisfies the desires and the thirsts of your heart. Okay, second commandment. You shall not make for yourself any card, image, or idols. When God created the world, there was only one thing created in his image. What was that? You and me. So the mirror is that God does not want us to create him in our image because God wants to recreate us back into his image. In Jeremiah 18, we know the story, but we're not going to open it. God used the potter clay analogy, and in that analogy, he's the potter because he's the creator, and we are the clay, the ones who are created. But today, ladies and gentlemen, mankind has made God the clay, and we have become the potter. They say things, well, my God is like this, or you have revealed yourself like this, God, but I would rather that you be like this. And so we therefore create God according to our preferences instead of allowing God to conform us into his image. I am under the law, and it condemns me because even though I may not have carved him into an actual image, I have created a mental image of him that is not according to biblical self-revelation of who God has told me he is. So the transcript is when I come close to God and I've asked him to write his law on my heart. I ask him to reveal himself to me and then this commandment that used to condemn me uh, <clears throat> reveals God to me because he has promised. I don't have to guess anymore who God is. God has promised in his word that he would never leave me or forsake me, that he would always be with me. So in a matrimonial comparison, I don't need to have a picture of Lori represent my relationship with her because Lori lets me spend actual literal time with her and she desires to be with me in real time and in person and not just by picture. God's presence is in real time and in real person with us, not by image. If we let him, God will come very close to us. And when the law reveals my distortion about who God is, he chooses to come close and live inside of me when I let him do that. The third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This goes beyond, oh my God. In the Bible, the name of God is the very equivalent of his character. In Exodus chapters 33 and 34, when Moses asked God to reveal his character to him, 
God describes his name in beautiful qualities. So the mirror of this commandment is by living a a life contrary to God's principles, we are misrepresenting his character or name through our unrighteous deeds, our words, and our actions. We give a wrong representation to people around us. And it really doesn't say that we're a Christian at all when we do that. When we see our need, then the transcript, the God writing his law on our hearts, brings us to our knees asking God to change us by writing his character. Remember, law and character are synonymous. So he writes his law, his character, in our heart. He then manifests himself through us in the Galatians 5, Fruits of the Spirits, where before we were condemned, now we know that against such there is no law. God's commandments become promises that we don't want to misrepresent God's character anymore by our wrongful living. This is how God wants to give us victory over sin and to help us live correctly through him. This is God writing his name, his character, his law on our foreheads as a last day end time generation people. If you look up Revelation 14.1 and Revelation 22 verse 4, you see that God does that very thing. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All right, if we look at this from a mirror perspective, from condemning, we then aren't regarding Sabbath as anything special. It's just another day. But Genesis 2, 1 and 3 reminds us that this is a special day. It's a holy time carved out by God at creation. As Seventh-day Adventists, I believe that we have underestimated the beauty of the Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath is not solely worshiping on the right day, the seventh day, although it is correct and it's important. But in matrimonial comparison, my marriage to Lori is more than, well, Lori and I are married. There is more to my marriage than merely being married to Lori, who, by the way, is the right person for me. There is so much more. So let's look at the transcript. When God created this world during the first six days, he created spaces, and then he filled those spaces. But on the seventh day, God created a space of time, and he infused himself in that space. In Genesis 2, verse 3, God blesses, and sanctifies, meaning he sets apart for a holy use, the Sabbath. God didn't sanctify a place. God didn't sanctify an object or anything else. In both instances, if, sorry, why didn't God uh, do that? Because he sanctified time. Why? In all major religions of the world, a place or object is sanctified. Yet in both of those instances, whether you're worshiping a, uh, um, an object or a place, um, you are having to go to them in order to experience God. But with time, we see that time and God are coming to us in order for us to experience that time with him. This reveals that God pursues us. He wants and desires us so very much. 
In every other man-made religion, mankind is pursuing and looking for God. Sabbath isn't just about getting the right day correctly. It's about getting the right person correctly. God has placed himself in this sacred space called time and Sabbath. And he promises to come to us in a very special way because he wants to have a very special date with, with us. So we've just reviewed the first four commandments and they hopefully by now seem a little more romantic to you than the way you saw them before. Now the last six commandments are grouped <clears throat> into one doctrine. Oops, whoops, I'm going ahead of time. I, didn't, I guess I didn't put that in, sorry. <clears throat> the last six commandments are grouped into one doctrine, and Jesus said in Mark 12, 31, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So now, I'd like to go with you looking at something even deeper about the matrimony. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. So when a couple is married at the ceremony, one of the questions is asked, will you take this person to have and to hold? To have means to exclusively possess. It's the right, it's right, so right out of the gate, God is saying, I want your affections. The second commandment says, don't make graven images and don't bow down to them or serve them. I have a question, with what do we make graven images and bow down with. It's our bodies. So God is saying, give me your body. In the third commandment, it says, don't take the name of God in vain. With what do we take God's name in vain with? Well, we take it with our mouth. So God is saying, give me your undivided thoughts and feelings, all which lead to words. Their expressions, including all the I love you's. <clears throat> the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Implicit in this commandment we just saw is God saying, give me your time. So ladies and gentlemen, these are the expectations that both spouses-to-be have at their wedding ceremony. They each want their affections, their time, their body, and their words. The most proximate and intimate of all relationships has these four com components as factors. So I'm not gonna go through the um, um, rest of the six because we just, just no, no time. So I'm going to uh, skip these next two slides. And I'm just gonna say that the 10 commandments are God's owner's manual for how you and I can live an abundant life through him. When we obey him, we prosper and flourish. When we step outside of God's designed intentions for living our life, we find ourselves outside of the realm of what works, and we suffer the consequences accordingly, and follow to its logical conclusion, death itself. By our disobedience to God, we cut ourselves off from the only true source of life, Jesus himself. When you see God's Decalogue from a promised perspective instead of obligatory, we now see this beautiful thought developed in this text. I just had it there. We have been given exceedingly great and precious 
promises. What do we call the Ten Commandments? Promises. So that through these, what does these mean now in terms of if we're applying it to the Ten Commandments? That through the Ten Commandments, you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, I'd like to apply this briefly to a, a practical part. After Babylon fell in Daniel 5, Darius begins afresh with new leadership for his kingdom. The question was, who would be promoted to the top job? And Daniel 3 tells us that he, was dis- that he had distinguished himself, that the king saw an excellent spirit in him, and therefore he set Daniel over the entire part of his realm. Hearing of Daniel's promotion, his colleagues tried to get some scuttlebutt on him. But verse 4 says that there was no error found in him. In verse 5, it says, We will not find any charge against Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So what did Daniel, what happened? These men tricked the king to sign a law forbidding the worship of anyone except the king himself. This law was irreversible for 30 days and required of everyone. But notice this. In verse 10, we read that when Daniel knew that the writing had been signed, he still went home, knelt on his knees, prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since the early days. This was not willful disobedience to the laws of the land by Daniel. This was intentional obedience to God and his law. In verse 12, the king confirms that this law could not be altered for 30 days. Daniel faithfully served the king except when it contradicts the covenant that God had made with him. But I'm gonna just stay right there. Stay with me in in your mind to Daniel 6, but then we're gonna go to Daniel 7. We see something else happening in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, a little horn power changes God's times and laws. In Daniel 6, Humanity is creating its own man-made laws that they say cannot be changed. But then in Daniel 7, the Antichrist thinks that he can change God's law, which is itself as timeless and changeless as God himself. Isn't that amazing? Now, back to Daniel 6. Darius knew enough about Daniel that he had confidence that his God would save him. So verse 22 of Daniel Chapter 7, 6, says, Daniel says, My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. So as we go back to Daniel 7, there in verses 3 and 4, where Daniel is having another dream. And notice what he says. And four great beasts came out of the sea, each having a uh, different than the other. The first part of verse four says, the first was like a what? 
Daniel chapter 7, verse 4 says that the first beast that Daniel saw was a lion. Where had Daniel just been delivered from? The lion's den. Was Daniel afraid of a lion anymore? No. So if Daniel's not afraid of this lion, he's not afraid of all the other beasts that come forward because God has already dealt with the worst of them. Daniel knew that the other beasts are in God's control because he had just experienced the lion's den. When we are asked to choose between man's law and God's law, there will be a threat of punishment that goes along with it just as in the days of Daniel. But just like Daniel and Fredidus, Mugabe, that I told the kids, no harm will come upon God's people in these last days during these short and troublous times. Why? Because God's people have been faithful to him and choose his law over man's law. God's law is central to the controversy in Daniel 6. God's law is also central to the great controversy in Daniel 7. Notice these two verses. Here are the patience of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Remember the faith of Jesus that we read last time in Galatians 2? Notice this verse. The rest of the offspring keep his commandments and have the testimony of Jesus. Who is their testimony about? It's of Jesus. Notice that in both verses, what's in the middle there? They both keep his commandments. Both of these two verses are a description of God's end time people. Notice that they keep their covenant with God and are unwilling to break away from him staying faithful to his law because they know that God's law cannot be changed. Psalm 89, verse 34, my covenant, says God, I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. This isn't a deity barking orders, brothers and sisters. This isn't God changing his mind because, well, you know what, the first covenant that we talked about two weeks ago, you didn't keep it, oh no, I got it wrong. This is a personal God that enters into a mutual covenant with his people, holding himself accountable and being faithful to them at all costs, including the loss of his own life. I want to read one text to you here. Daniel, when he was praying, uh, he knew the time was coming for the 70 weeks to uh, be fulfilled, he says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 4, and I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession and says, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. Daniel 6 is a narrative of one of God's followers who bore God's covenant and his law within his heart. Daniel saw how committed God was to him and he joyously committed himself back to God. Daniel knew God had not and would not ever break his word to Daniel. And Daniel 1 verse 8 says, Daniel purposed in his heart to reciprocate that same trust, that same confidence in God. Now I want you to notice something, ladies and gentlemen. 
Here's the 10th commandment. I said I wouldn't go through the other six, but here's, let's start with the, let's just look at this one. The 10th commandment says, you shall not covet. Jesus wants to be our all so that we don't covet anything else, just like the first commandment. Do you know that when the first, when the lady, the, the, the woman at the well there in John 4, when she tasted the living water for Jesus, from Jesus, did she want anything else? That was it. Now, I want you to see something. If you take the Ten Commandments and you read them backwards, you do exactly what Satan did. Satan coveted, which ultimately led to him wanting to be like God, which ultimately brings us all into bondage and slavery. When you read them the way they're supposed to be, there will be no law against us. The, mere, the law will no longer condemn us. It will be written on our hearts. But when we read them backwards, that's exactly what Satan did. Every time we disconnect from God, the law is there to graciously remind us that we have separated from God and it points us back to the path on how to reconnect with God. That is why Paul referred to the law as our teacher, instructing us where we should go. The law is not a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's not checklists or obligations that are done with duty and drudgery. Can you imagine if I were to say, oh man, I have to be nice to Lori because, well, we're married and that's just what I must do in order to stay married to her. The Ten Commandments are God's invitation to enter into a holy matrimonial covenant that will lead into an eternal marital bliss between God as our husband and we as his bride. Jesus came to live out the law in his life through covenantal faithfulness so that we could be saved from eternal ruin and live eternity happily ever after with God. God is love. His law is love. I pray that you will never again read the Ten Commandments merely as an obligation to God or as a checklist that you must obey out of duty. You want to read the law and understand his Ten Commandments as what it truly is, a transcript of his character, his unique, particular way of doing things. God is love. God is law.